Let's keep praising the Lord together by turning in our Bibles to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. And if you're a guest with this, or maybe it's your first time uh, in a church service, we have some Bibles located in the, uh, underneath the seats in front of you. And you can find the passage that we'll be studying together today on page 454. Page 454. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, that blue Bible is for you. Feel free to take it. We'd love for you to read it and find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As you continue to turn to Psalm 17, I just want to do a little bit of uh, forecasting, uh, housekeeping with our church family. You know, we've been in Psalms for a few weeks, and this could last a few weeks more. But I just wanted to, like, let you know something that I'm interested in and would love your feedback um, at the door whenever. I am concerned for our church family to feed from all of God's Word, not just isolated portions of it. And one of the areas that I've been contemplating for my own soul's good and potentially for the good of the congregation is looking into a study of the minor prophets. Now, the reason why I'm interested in that is because I don't think that most of you in here have probably ever heard a message out of the entire genre. Uh, but maybe you've been flooded with teaching on this particular topic and we don't need to cover it. So that's the kind of feedback that I need from you. Uh, it does reveal something about God, something that he wants us to know, things that we need to know to obey him and follow him. So if you have some thoughts on that, I'm willing to listen. But I've been studying um, uh, subsequent to the, or alongside the book of Psalms this for a couple months now, and I think it'd be good for us but I want to hear from you first. But today we're in Psalm uh, 17. And I am going to do something a little different this morning because it's such a long psalm. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, 7 and 8, and then 13 and 14. And I'll cover the entire passage once we actually get into it. The reason why I'm doing this is A, it's a rather long psalm. And then B, I want you to note the main prayers of this psalm because you notice it says a prayer of David notice how he prays he says hear a just cause O Lord attend to my cry give ear to my prayer from my lips free of deceit from your presence let my vindication come let your eyes behold the right jump down to verse 7 Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And then verse 13 to 14. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. It's a debate. I'll go ahead and admit it from the outset. It's hard for us to tell when we see this particular man's life and story whether he is the luckiest 
or the unluckiest man who have ever lived. His name is Frayne Selleck. He's currently 92 years old. Uh, He made a career teaching in Croatia. And the reason why there's this debated status as to whether or not he is the luckiest or unluckiest man is because of the uh, just frequent near brushes with death that he has both experienced and clearly survived. In the first incident, this is in 1962, he's 32 years old. He's riding a train through a cold, rainy canyon, and the train flew off the tracks and crashed in a river. An unknown person pulled Selleck to safety while 17 other passengers drowned. He only suffered a broken arm and hypothermia. The next year, during his first and only plane ride, he was blown out of a malfunctioning plane door and landed in a haystack. And the plane crashed, killing 19 people. Three years after that, 1966, a bus that he was riding skidded off the road into a river, drowning four passengers, and Selleck swam to shore four years later, 1970. Three years later. (laughs) We'll just keep going. (laughs) In another driving incident, the engine of his car was doused with hot oil from a malfunctioning fuel pump, causing flames to shoot through the air vents. Selleck's hair was completely singed, but he was otherwise unharmed. (laughs) 95, he was bust in Zagreb, but sustained only minor injuries. His truck on a mountain curb by swerving into a guardrail, which were the force. And then listen to this. You would think, wow, this is like really eventful. Two days after his 73rd birthday, Selleck won over $1 million in the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and by the way, uh, he was on his fifth. So is he the luckiest or the unluckiest man of all time? I don't know. It kind of depends on which way you want to look at it. I mean, you could think that he's lucky on account of all these ways that he's escaped death and clearly winning this lottery, but you really had a hard time of it in so many ways because I've never experienced anything close to that. And Christians, we serve, but we do recognize that for certain and in certain seasons, it seems as if God is orchestrating either for us or against us the word luck or fortune because it implies that there's some other force that's in control but we know that the sovereign hand of God orchestrates all that happens and I think our lives sometimes in Christ uh, so much resemble that famous opening line of the Dickens novel it was the best of times and the worst of times it's a weird time in the same time, in the same place, season, it could seem like God is so for us. He is so good to us. He is protecting us. He is preserving us, favoring us. And then at the very same time, it could seem like we're experiencing trial and persecution and opposition. And the weird thing is, in some of our hardest moments, we actually feel the nearest. 
And in some of the times in which it seems all is going well, we can even feel the farthest away. But there are some times where it is clear that the burdens are outweighing the blessings. being experienced simultaneously for all who are in Christ, and yet there are some times, though, where it seems like it's one thing after another after another. It could be something on the world scene. It could be something going on financially. It could be something going on relationally, emotionally. And that's good for us then now to be in Psalm 17, because we find in David someone who seems to experience not only the best of times, but the worst of times. Have you noticed in our study in recent weeks how this guy almost always seems to be in some type of hot water situation? It's like someone's always trying to kill him, someone is always slandering him, or either he's struggling with depression. Every once in a while, like Psalm 16, he'll speak up and say, hey, things are going well for me. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. Uh, But otherwise, like David seems to be a little bit like Salak. Like he's just always a few uh, moments away from imminent destruction. I mean, it's it's like this guy, you don't want to hang around him. It's kind of like Mr. Magoo. Just like wherever he's going, I mean, there's just stuff that's falling in around him, and yet God's providing, God is preserving, God is enabling his escape. And what I think we would take particular encouragement in from this song is that David finds himself in another crisis moment. And yet he is confident that all will work out in the end. He's amid crisis, and yet he is more confident than we see him than any other psalm. And I think for all of us who experience our own crises, we want to know, how can I have that kind of confidence? How can I experience said hot water situations and and go through them with such optimism, such faith? The text will give us three sources of this kind of confidence that are experienced through prayer. The first is our righteous position. David is confident before God, despite everything going on around him, because of his righteous position. We read verses 1 and 2, in which David is crying out to Yahweh, And notice in particular David's concern for justice. Uh, You see it there. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. He's forecasting that he is a man of integrity. He is not overstating the situation here. Look at verse 2. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So you see just cause, and then in verse 2 you see vindication, and then at the end of verse 2 you see behold the right. Uh, These are all terms that deal with uh, things being made right that were at some point wrong. 
David is saying, I'm just, I'm on the right side of things. I'm on the correct side of things. Yahweh, listen to me, please, because things seem off. Things seem wrong. That's what the term vindication means. It means God make right that which is wrong. I, I love this term as well, rectification. Make it straight. It's crooked. Uh, some of you may have these tendencies in your own life to, to see everything like, you know, lined up perfectly and then to see something kind of out of place and you want to straighten it. If you've ever seen muck, you know, <laughs> that, that tendency to want everything to be exactly like it's supposed to be. That's David's heart. For him, it's not uh, just some disheveled books, <laughs> uh, but it's actually like the world. For him, it seems that because he's a righteous individual living in God's world, it would seem to him that all should be working well. It would seem to him that because he is living righteously before God, that he will be rewarded in some way, especially protected in some way. But he finds himself in this particular situation with things off. They're not right. He's asking God to fix it, to straighten it. And it seems, and the text is vague on purpose, but it seems that maybe David, as a political leader, is being maligned, is being falsely accused in some way. And it's one of those accusations, like a nagging cold that just won't go away. Like he can't shake it. And so he's saying, God, will you please fix this? Will you please make right that which is wrong? And here's what's so interesting to me. Is the reason for which David will argue that God should make things right. So David not only is going to make the request, Lord, right that which is wrong, but he's going to give him a reason, and his reason will blow you away. Look at verses 3 to 5. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. Uh, friends, are, are you catching the logic here? Uh, David is actually saying, God, I want you to make all things right because I am in the right. Most of us who have in recent years taken in a steady diet of uh, Puritan readings of some kind would think we would never say that we are in the right. We are but worms <laughs> before God. We are, we are uh, wicked, depraved sinners in need of God's grace. And David's like, God, test me out. Look at every part of me imaginable. I'm good. Things are good. I'm not hiding anything before you. And because I am living for you so faithfully and so purely, why won't you then reward me with some relief? Can you imagine? 
I mean, I'm not overstating this. Look at the verse again. He says, you've tried my heart. That's that same word uh, that talks about smelting. I mean, you've put me in the, in the hot situations, and there's nothing evident coming out. You have visited me by the night. N- the nighttime, by the way, is where you are when no one else is looking or around. He says, even at night, even when there's no one else around, you've tried me. You've tested me, means to examine or to approve. And notice this, it says, you will find nothing. (laughs) I'm thinking, surely we can find something. And yet David says, you will find nothing. I'm pure in my mouth. Remember James in the New Testament where he says, look, (laughs) uh, the one way that you can tell that we're all sinners is by our tongue. Read James chapter 2. And this is the one area that David says, I've resolved that I'm not going to even sin in this way. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. He moves from the inner man to the mouth, and now he's going to look at his broader works in the world. Notice that, verse 4, with regard to the works of man. By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. David's saying, especially as a a military leader, uh, you need to understand that he had resources at his disposal that you and I do not have. Uh, Powerful men politically have the capacity uh, to hurt people should they so desire. Whether it be through their own formal military or whether it be through an unofficial group uh, that can do things for them, this was the normal operation of kings in the ancient Near East to fall into violent ways to say, you know what, let's just eliminate this problem. (laughs) It kind of makes me think of what you would think to be a mafia drug lord. They have people at their disposal. And what David is saying is no matter what has been going on, I haven't fallen to the ways of the violent. I haven't resorted uh, to these underhanded ways of getting what I want. He goes on to say, my steps have held fast to your paths and my feet have not slipped. Notice the contrast between the ways of the violent and the steps that have held fast to his paths. Uh, the word, Hebrew word for ways there is interesting because uh, it envisions in some ancient Near Eastern text uh, like the path of destruction that would follow an army. Uh, if you've ever seen like pictures of uh, like the Revolutionary War and like where they did battle or the Civil War, you can actually see where the battles took place <laughs> versus where they didn't take place. He's saying, I have not followed these paths of destruction. I have not gone off into that direction. Instead, I have, notice this, my steps have held fast to your paths. Uh, Paths are the well-worn roads, that which has been established and flattened out, that which God has ordained uh, to get us from point A to point B. God's ways versus our ways. He's saying, I walk in your way. Think of Jesus' uh, terminology in Matthew chapter 7 where he talks about uh, wide is the gate and wide is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow and straight is the way that leads to eternal life. David is saying, I have walked the straight and narrow. And then he not only says that, but just to add like one more note of confidence here. He says, my feet have not slipped. I haven't even fallen off the path. Now, I want you to know, friends, that this causes me um, all kinds of trouble. 
I mean, the, the text is easy enough to understand. Uh, but experientially, I'm having trouble here. Because the argument in prayer is, is really simple to follow. David's saying, okay, Lord, I know it's all wrong. I want you to make it right because I'm living in a right way before you. Now, he's got this confidence that God's going to work it all out because he's righteous. Not just because God is righteous, but because he, David, is righteous. And the, this argument kind of parallels that to me of like a, a person who's been a customer at a particular establishment for a long time, and they say, you know, I've been, I've been a loyal customer for umpteen number of years. I've always given you guys the benefit of the doubt. I have always paid my bill on time. You know, why won't you do this or that? And he's kind of talking to God in that way. But the, 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 the place in which this is like uh, paining me is how can I say to God, okay, uh, I, I've lived so remarkably, uh, I expect you now uh, to make right all the things that I deem wrong in my life. And yet this is what he does. So we've got a problem. How are we going to solve it? Well, I think there's a couple things we need to remember. First is what may be going on historically here is a particular charge. So, again, the psalm is rather indescript, but if David is being accused of something in particular, he is likely speaking not of no sin at any time, in any way, in any shape, in any form. We know from Psalm 51 that David himself will say, in sin did my mother conceive me. This is a guy that is not claiming sinless perfection by any means. But when it comes to whatever the accusation may be in this particular moment, he is saying, I am free from this. I have not departed from your way. I have not done what you said I've done. I am not, I am not guilty of what I'm being accused of. There is a particular concern in which David is saying that whatever is being brought up against me is not true. But there's another sense in which David can be so confident about his righteousness before the Lord. And that is because God had included him in his covenant people. And by faith, David had been partaking of the sacrificial system and knew that there was a divine eraser on sin. Now, friends, I think we need to remember that though we do sin and though we do fail, it is as if it has never happened on account of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. God looks at us through the shed blood of his son Jesus and proclaims us not guilty. Your sin has been cast into the deepest ocean. It is as if it has never happened. There is a sense in which a Christian can actually walk through this life confident that they are clean and right before God on account of what Christ has done. So there's the particular situation we need to remember. There's also the positional aspect. He knows that he is part of God's covenant people, and that's what those sacrifices were for. But there's one other thing that I want to point out that I think is the main emphasis here. On account of the positional, David has practically lived a distinguished and exemplary life. Compared to the pagans around him, David's concern here isn't a comparison between him and God. David's concern is a comparison between him and the rioting pagans around him. I think, friends, sometimes we forget that we have been converted. We have been changed. I think it was John Newton who says, I am not what I used to be. I am not what I ought to be. 
but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, Friends, we need to remember that justification, that declaration of our righteousness before God on account of Christ leads to sanctification in which we are practically made more and more holy. And sometimes you look at your life and you're like, man, you don't know what I did this week. Look, I can testify to that. This pastor, and I get it, I'm up on the stage. And look, what happens on Sunday, this is the best you will ever see me. I'm sorry. But I know this week my own struggles with anger, with lust, with selfishness, with laziness. I know those things to be true. But I know something else to be true. I am way different than I used to be. And I am way different than what I would be apart from Christ. Friends, some of you are so down on yourselves. You're like the 11-year-old boy that's like, Dad, I'm not growing. (laughs) When am I going to grow? And sometimes we just need to go back to the doorpost and see where we've been. Those marks, those notches, What was your life like five years ago? What was it like ten years ago? It is notably different than it used to be, and it is notably different than what it would be apart from Christ. David is saying, compared to these pagans who do not worship you, they do not honor you, they show no allegiance to you, uh, they are fully under the sway of their own sensuality and pride and materialism. Uh, They are all about themselves. They are not about you. God, I am living in the right. And I really do believe, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you should be able to say before God, I know I'm not perfect, but I am living for you. I am in the right on account of what Christ has done. Make it right, please. We have such low expectations of God. And in part we have, I think it's because we have such low understanding of what has already happened to us in Christ. (laughs) We don't want to expect anything from God because we don't want to be disappointed. So we lower our expectations because we know that we failed in so many ways. We're like, okay, well, it can't be but so good because I'm so bad. Yet the text is saying, no, 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 no. Up your expectations of God and up your understanding of what God has done for you in Christ. There should be a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are in a broken world. Ask God to fix it. Cry out to him to make it right. This is what David is modeling for us. This confidence that we can cry out to God because we have been made righteous. And so I would just encourage you, friends, uh, to understand and embrace the value of holy and right living. It doesn't always lead to all the great outcomes that you hope, but it does give you a platform for confident prayer before God. That's why the book of James says that uh, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When we are practically living in line with what God himself has commanded, we experience this confidence 
And when we are sinning in secret, it causes us to be cowardly, not only before the world, but before our Lord. Not crying out to him for that which we need and long for. So David gives us this source of confidence, our righteous position. There's a second thing that he gives us that can keep us confident despite crisis, and that is our special protection. So we've looked at our righteous position in verses 1 through 5. Now let's note our special protection in verses 7 through 12. And notice the prayer aspect of this again. Uh, David's going to cry out confidently in verse 7, wondrously show your steadfast love. Uh, The word wondrously is uh, interesting because in, in many places it just means to be distinguished, to be set apart. What David is saying here is, do show your love, show your steadfast love, your loyal love, your faithful love, your special love for your people in a way that is stupendous, in a way that is amazing, in a way that, in a way that is wondrous, miraculous. It's, he's not saying show your love to me in the natural way. He's saying show your love to me in the supernatural way. <laughs> Lord, I want you to love me in some extravagant way. And notice what he calls God. This is a fascinating name of God. I know that there's some ladies in our church right now who are doing a Bible study on the names of God. Uh, Ladies, I've never seen in any of the names of God books this particular name of God. I think you should add it as an appendix to your study. Notice it. He calls God the Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. (laughs) It's like the longest title ever. (laughs) But he addresses God as in, in name this way. God's name uh, it can be labeled as the Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. <laughs> and the reason why the naming feature of this is so important is because it's just characteristic of God. We can give God this label because this is what he characteristically does. It's, it's a nominative. It's not a verb. It's a nominative. It, 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 is, it has become so regularly done by God that it now characterizes who he is. The analogy I like to use for this is painting. Uh, I have painted lots in my life. Uh, I do it, I don't know, it seems like once a year for something or another at least. And I can say, and everybody would know this, I am not a painter. I have painted, but I am not a painter. Um, it does, I don't do it enough for it to characterize me. What's interesting about what David's saying here is he's not saying, oh, God occasionally rescues those at his right hand. He's saying that God does this so much that it identifies him. He doesn't just paint, he's a painter. He doesn't just uh, redeem and protect those who come to him. He's known by this. And so he cries out to God for this type of deliverance. And so it's rather indescript. He says, God, show your miraculous love. And then he says very particularly what he wants God to do. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now there's the prayer. He prays generally in verse 6, he gets a little more specific in verse 7, and he centers in on what he really wants in verse 8, and he says, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Uh, The apple of your eye, Uh, we know that phrase. Uh, I think it was first introduced to us, actually, uh, no surprise here, through Shakespeare. 
It's been around for about 500 years, but it does not match the Hebrew at all. <laughs> the apple of the eye is not a Hebrew idiom. It's a Western American idiom. Uh, the, their literal phrase here is the little man or daughter of the eye. Now, <laughs> if you first read that, when I was doing my stuff this week, I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and it, what's so fascinating is that th- the Hebrews like kind of imagine that you could tell what someone was looking at by the reflection off of their eyeball. <laughs> and so if I was looking at Eden here on the front row and someone else was looking at me, they'd be able to see her reflection in my eye. She is the special attention of my focus in this particular moment. So it then eventually became to be equated with the iris, <laughs> uh, that which the iris is focused on, the apple of the eye, the main part of the eye. What David is praying here is that I would be the special object of your attention and focus. Lord, that you would keep like looking at me. This is so good for us to remember, friends. The, the omniscience of God, the fact that he is, uh, knows all things and that he sees all things and that he's everywhere at all times, for some has been presented as threatening. Like, oh no, I don't want God to see me. <laughs> and yet the text here is inviting that. God, keep looking at me. Keep looking at me because I know that you will protect me. Notice the next phrase, keep me under the shadow of your wings. You've seen it. You know it's true. It is the instinct of a mother bird to crowd her chicks under her, providing protection in time of threat. It is a beautiful picture. There they are, close to her breast, protected by her very own person. And David is saying, God, hold me close to yourself. Protect me by your very own person. I, keep looking at me. Keep protecting me. From what? There's the question. Now, David is interesting because he's going to pray exactly, I mean, he's going to forecast for us why he's so threatened. Look at verse 9. Protect me in this special way from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Notice that, I mean, like he has people who actually want to kill him. And it isn't just a few people, but it says that they surround me. David lived between the rock and the hard place. I mean, he is absolutely surrounded here. There's nowhere for him to go, at least in his understanding of this dilemma. Verse 10, and these people, they're not only everywhere, but they are intensely evil. It says in verse 10 that they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. That closing the hearts to pity uh, literally means uh, fat-hearted. <laughs> Uh, it's this funny thing to me, uh, fat-hearted. It, it's like there's so much between them and their heart that they can't feel anything. They're incapable of compassion. They're arrogant. And then he mentions the threatening situation in verse 11. They have now surrounded our steps. So they're everywhere. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. It is their intense objective. It is their mission they have made it the object of their focus to cast us to the ground to throw us down cast us to the ground is the same word that's used in other places in the old testament talk about nailing a tent down into the ground they want to nail me to the ground 
And then verse 12, the last descriptor. He is like a lion, eager to tear. And not just any lion, by the way. (laughs) It says that a young lion, one with vigor, one with strength, lurking in the ambush. He particularizes his enemy as an individual. So if it's a group, he's he's focusing on the ringleader, or he's giving us an object of this one just to better picture the many. And so he is just crying out to God for help here. And friends, I, I want us to understand that we too find ourselves in threatening situations. Now, the beautiful thing about this is David could be speaking metaphorically. I don't know how many times, unless you have served in our armed forces, you have actually been pinned down in a foxhole somewhere and have been surrounded by an enemy. I'm looking around and I'm thinking like maybe three of you. Maybe. So it's kind of hard for us to identify with such a desperate prayer for this kind of protection. And friends, I think we need to remember, though, that the psalmist is not trying to peg us into a particular historical circumstance. Every one of us in this room know what it's like to feel surrounded, like there is no hope, that we are being attacked from every side, that there is no rescue in sight, the rock and the hard place, and that the enemy himself is ruthless. And the text is saying, no, you have refuge. There is special protection that is afforded you. There is a mighty fortress in our God. That second verse that we sang today is so good. It's from the pen of Martin Luther, who himself, by the way, was holed up in a castle when he wrote this and literally had people looking for him, trying to kill him, or at least bring him to justice in front of the papal court. And it's from that castle of Wittenberg that he writes these lines. Knowing that the enemies around him, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. <laughs> he says, we're surrounded and we're okay. It's fine. It's fine. Everything is going to be cool. Everything is okay. And friends, we ourselves are indeed surrounded I want you to understand that the war that we face isn't as straightforward as just suicide bombers that could occasionally encroach onto American soil. But Paul makes it clear that we actually face enemies who are empowered by dark forces spiritually and spread all kinds of erroneous beliefs, not only among society generally, but targeting us specifically. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We do have real threats around us. I want you to understand something. This is a fundamental thing that we just need to grasp. The world is not neutral. It is not friendly to followers of Jesus. I know the people around you at your work are really nice, and they don't mind like inviting you out with them from time to time, and they're really polite, and they do good things, but you need to understand the world is not our friend. Some of the most powerful movements of hell itself have committed themselves to the destruction of what you believe. I want you to understand that. This includes atheistic communism in countries like China, Russia, and North Korea. They hate what you believe and what you embody. That's a fact. Militant Islam in places like Iran and Nigeria and Pakistan. They would literally kill you if they could. 
atheistic materialism in the United States and Great Britain. Even within our own country, forces have aligned to destroy the way of God and all who would walk in them. And while it may not express itself in physical violence, the powers that be would do anything and everything to shut you up and make you irrelevant. I just think of things like modern gender theory, legislated sexual debauchery. I mean, think about it. Once the government is on the side of sexual immorality, now it's you versus the powers that be. The legalized infanticide of abortion, critical theories of race that labor to deconstruct the biblical family, I mean, I'm like, there are entire movements that are targeting the Judeo-Christian heteronormous family and saying that they are the great threat for the future of the United States. These things are not hypotheticals. They are out there. But here's the great thing. We'll be fine. We can cry out to God for a special protection and enjoy it. It was fun on a Monday night for uh, a few of us to go up to Grace Baptist up in Cape Coral. And we were uh, listening to a brother address some modern social concerns that have been going on in basically our own country. And anyway, he did a good job at actually uh, presenting the threats that are there. And all of us, uh, by the time it was over, were rightly concerned about uh, some of these unchristian ideas that had been infiltrating our country and so it ended with a Q&A in which people could just kind of like spend some time asking these uh, pastoral leaders like hey what do we do what do we do what's the strategy and so the the questions trended toward that end Uh, they're like well we should do this and we need to be aware of that and you should do this in this particular work situation and I remember being especially uh, blown away by uh, one lady who got up to not Uh, actually ask a question she made a statement and that always scares you you know if you're like the pastor moderating a group and then somebody's just getting up and they don't have a question they're like I just want to say something (laughs) but what she said was brilliant it was an elder's wife at the church and she said hey I'm so grateful that we're thinking so carefully about all these ideas and how they're encroaching upon us and the strategies that we need to be employing she says but I just think that we also need to remember the power of prayer for what we're facing in these days. And as much as we would mobilize, uh, you know, for, for engagement, like we need to actually rally together and pray. And I thought, I mean, I've been reflecting on that all week. I'm like, wow, she was speaking at me because like, I'm the strategist. I, I see a problem, I'm like, all right, let's fix it. What, why, how, what's the problem? Why, what are the objectives? How, what's the thing? You know, and, and she just said, hey, we need to remember to pray. That's exactly what David is doing here. Friends, some of you get so worked up about what's going on in the broader world or what's going on in this world. And I will tell you, as I've told you a hundred times before now, take those problems as opportunities to pray. Pray. That's where the protection is. David is saying, hey, hey look, be confident that God has his eye on you, that he wants to protect you. So ask him for that. Come to him. 
I always find Ephesians 6 especially fascinating where you have this whole call to warfare, right, that David's talking about? I mean, excuse me, that Paul is talking about. And he talks about, like, strapping on all these instruments of warfare. And then he gets to the very end and he says, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. It's as if, like, that's the way you wear the armor. That's the way you equip it, by constantly praying. So we depend actively, persistently on the Lord because he has afforded us special protection. So we can be confident in crisis. On account of our righteous position, our special protection, and thirdly, our ultimate destination. Our ultimate destination. This is beautiful. David's prayer intensifies right at the end. And notice how he uses these imperatives with the Lord Friends, he's not asking here. He is stating. Uh, he, he is giving a demand. He says, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. I mean, David is saying, God, stop this. Stop this oppression. Stop this persecution. Stop this opposition. He says, confront them, subdue him. And I love this. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your pool noodle. By your ping pong paddle. No, by your sword. David is asking for the destruction of any threat to him and God's agenda. God eliminated fully and finally. May this ultimately stop, please. Friends, again, I am I'm enamored with this holy dissatisfaction of David. I remember the, that line from C.S. Lewis where he says, you know, in our own day, we're like uh, people playing in, in the mud, uh, satisfied with uh, the slums as opposed to like seeing the beauty of the sea. Here we are fooling about with substances and sex and social recognition and money. And he's saying there's something even greater out there. And David's going to model that here. He's going to say, God, put an end to all this and let's get to what's really important. Notice what he says. Deliver my soul from, your, from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Who's David concerned about eliminating? He says, God, eliminate this just temporal mindset. These men who are committed to that which they can see and feel and taste and touch here and now. Lord, I'm done with this. Please put a stop to this. And then notice what David says. This is so honest, so raw. He says, you fill their womb or their belly with treasure. They are satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. Notice what David is saying about the enemies around him. He's like, God, they've got everything. They've got everything from a worldly perspective. They've got stuff. They're filled. Their bellies are filled with their abundance. They've got everything that you could possibly imagine. Not only do they have stuff, but they have family. A lot of us would like to say, oh, well, they've got money, but their relationships are bad. No, I know people who hate Jesus who have a lot of money and have pretty good families. David's saying they've got the stuff, they've got the family, 
And not only that, they've got a legacy. Notice the last line. It says, and they leave these things to their babies, to their children. What else could you want in this life? To have everything you need and to have great relationships? To the degree that you can pass stuff on to your kids, you're just thinking it doesn't get any better than this. Or it just seems like they've got it all. And David's despair turns to confidence in the last line. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Listen, friends, you can have money and you can have relationships and you can have legacy, but lack Jesus. And that will lead to an eternity of despair. If we're going to build our lives on anything, to quote the old preacher from a couple weeks ago, it better be the things that money can't buy and death can't take away. That's what David is saying here. He says, I have what money can't buy and what death can't take away. I will enjoy God's favor. It says, uh, the, the countenance of his face. I will behold your face in righteousness. Lord, I know that you are shining upon me. The face of God is just a metaphor for his active blessing and presence. He says, I will enjoy that. But he doesn't keep it confined to this life. Notice what David says. When I awake... I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The awakening here is referring about the death of sleep. Metaphor, metaphorically, we understand that, that you're either at death in the presence of the Lord or away from him in hell. And yet there is this idea in which we know that we will awake one day into God's presence beyond the sleep of death, again, to follow the metaphor. And David says, when that happens... I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He's saying, God, put an end to all this temporal opposition, and let's get on with it. Let me go ahead and enjoy your presence. I want to see you. I want to enjoy you. Remember at the end of Psalm 16, and verses 9 through 11? This was his hope there as well. You can look at it there in your text. He says, my flesh dwells secure. You're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption in the grave. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David wanted to get on with it. He wanted to be in God's presence. He is confident because he knows his ultimate destination. And so should we. Yeah, pray for deliverance. Pray for God to right the wrong. Pray for God to fix it. But in the end, know that he will put a full and final stop to it and all will be made right. We will be in the presence of God. This is why he's confident. The crisis is raging and yet he is confident because he knows his ultimate destination. I had the opportunity about a year ago do one of those uh, ropes courses if you don't know what that is I want you to imagine like a bunch of telephone poles uh, that that go anywhere from 30 to 40 feet in the air and then a bunch of uh, obstacles that you can crawl on to get from one telephone pole to the other like sometimes it's a rope uh, sometimes it's just a little log sometimes it's a plank 
Sometimes it's moving spinning tires. But the whole point is to get from one place to the other. Now, there's three levels. There's the 10-foot level at which you can try to overcome this obstacle course in which you would only hypothetically fall 10 feet. Then you take it up a notch and you go to the 20-foot level. And then there's a 30-foot level, which is immensely intimidating. 10 foot's enough. But what's so fascinating about this is they obviously don't let you do this without an anchor, without a rope. There are these lines that go above the obstacles and you're like strapped into this line. And so even though you're actually protected, your mind is fighting against you the entire time because you're thinking, I do not want to fall to my death. <laughs> and yet the people who master these things just learn to lean in on the line. They just understand that they've got the back. If you operate or try to operate as if you're going to fall, you will fail. I mean, it is the most pitiful thing to see a grown man clutching to a tire for his life when he has something already strapped to him. <laughs> Trust me, I know from experience. <laughs> you just got to free yourself up to know you're anchored. You've got to know that you're tied to the line of safety. I think the parallel is clear. Where does the confidence come from? Does it come from our own innate ability? It comes from the fact that we're anchored. It comes from the fact that we're tied to safety. In three ways in particular. Our righteous position. It's all good. It's going to be fine. He's going to work it out because he's made us right with him. We can lean in on that. We can move forward with that. We can move forward confidently on account of our special protection. You know he looks out for you in a way that is unique and special, and he will not allow anything to fully and finally harm you. Just keep going. And then there's one more anchor point, and it is our ultimate destination. Sure, the people around us may have all the money. It may seem like their families are as happy as can be. It may seem like their legacy is just something that stuns the masses, and yet we know that in the end, we will see his likeness. We will enjoy his face. It will all be made right. And so, church family, I am commending to you a confidence, confidence that money can't buy and that death can't take away. In Christ, you can be righteous and protected and preserved to the very end. And practically speaking, I would encourage you, if you lack this type of confidence to move on in life, to maybe pick one of these anchor points in Christ and hold on to it this week. Maybe you praise God for it in closing now. Write it down. Reflect on it this week. This is what we need to be holding on to, all made possible in Jesus. But for those of you who don't have these resources, for those of you who feel like you're on the high wire without the protection, I want you to understand it all can be experienced and known in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just trust him, depend on him, 
turn from your sin and trust in him alone and know this safety, this security, this favor. I would have us close in three ways. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to praise God for that safety, that anchor that we enjoy in Jesus. It's a new song that many of you don't know, but it's okay. It's a simple tune. You'll pick up on it. I even changed it around, even though the bulletins were already printed, because I was thinking, I will not be serving this church well if I do what I originally planned, as opposed to what we need to do. And then lastly, we want to reflect on the goodness of God. He is for us. He is protecting us. He is looking out for us. And may we leave this place with confidence. And let's let that begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we are your children, and we cling to you for ultimate safety and protection. Or sometimes it does seem as if you are against us. Sometimes it does seem, to use the world's term, that we are unlucky, that we are in hard places, dilemmas, that we face opposition and distress. And yet you deliver us. It is in those times that we can be most confident. Lord, give your people today this type of confidence, despite the crisis around them. And for those who do not yet enjoy safety in Christ, May today be the day of their salvation. And may you move in their hearts. May they trust you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.